Welcome back to Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury. This week, I'm continuing my discussion with Naomi Adele Smith about the withholding of information as a plot device. We're going to get into some deep sci-fi in this one, talking a lot about Star Wars, because I can't help myself, because I love it so goddamn much. Uh, we're going to talk about Obi-Wan and Yoda withholding information, and we're going to talk about some incest taboos in South Alderaan, because, you know, they're different. It's a different part of the galaxy. Uh, it's going to be great. There's a lot of really cool stuff in this conversation. As I said last week, I just had so much fun talking to Naomi. Before we get to that conversation, uh, I've been teasing this idea of doing this trial of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I've been talking about this for a while on the podcast, and I finally sat down and rewatched The Phantom Menace. I watched it with Daniel O'Connell. Uh, one of the the panelists for our Star Wars on Trial episode, and I had a revelation about what I was doing with this trial. Uh, I'd been, I, it was kind of a general idea. I knew I wanted to put this movie on trial because I'd hated it for my entire life since I saw it. I mean, it, it was one of those things that was. I, I'm one of those people that was, you know, emotionally damaged by Star Wars Episode One. Uh, but I watched it with with Dan, and he grew up loving this movie. And it's interesting when you sit down with someone to watch a movie, their experience of it can kind of influence you. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, there's nothing I love more than sitting down with somebody and watching Star Trek The Next Generation for the first time with them because I get to see it a little bit through their eyes for the first time again, which is just magic. So something happened. I enjoyed the movie. Uh, and it's not, it's not that I think that it's a good movie, but... What I realized is that I brought so much to it when I saw it the first time. So many years of being obsessed with Star Wars. I had so much riding on this movie being good. And I was completely unable to enjoy it because of that. Because, I mean, let's be honest, it's not a great movie. But there are some things about it that are worth watching. I know there's people out there listening to this and just screaming in agony as I say this. No, you know, they're going through that whole thing. But hear me out on this. So what I decided to do, instead of putting the movie on trial, we're going to put the way we remember the movie on trial, uh, which was this epiphany that popped into my head. And I love that idea so much that I am doing the ultimate uh, the ultimate in hyperbole. I'm starting another podcast, which is so, so bizarre. Because I, I have this podcast. I'm on episode 12. I'm doing it for no particular reason other than to talk about sci-fi with my friends. And starting another podcast just seems crazy. But I love the idea of putting the way we remember films on trial. And it seems like such a singular thing that it needs to be its own show. Uh, on this show, on Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury, there's not really a format. It's just kind of a, a free-for-all thought jam about what we think about sci-fi and anything goes. We can talk about whatever we want, and it's different every week, and that's something I like. Uh, I'm also a big fan of listening to podcasts that have a structure and have a certain way that they are. Um, I don't listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me too often, but when I do, I enjoy the fact that it has a structure. It has the same sort of thing going on every week. Uh, and for Sci-Fi on Trial, I decided that that's what it needed to be. It needed to be its own thing, its own show. So I'm starting a new podcast called Sci-Fi on Trial. Uh, the first episode will be The Phantom Menace. And I solicited some uh, input from all of my friends on Facebook and 
on Twitter and mostly on Facebook, because let's be honest, I don't have that many Twitter followers. Uh, but the response on Facebook was a little overwhelming. All these people wanted to talk to me about the movie and have their thoughts be heard. Uh, so I'm collecting some interviews from a bunch of my friends, and I've actually collected interviews from people that I knew back in high school, back in college. Uh, so they're recording themselves and emailing it to me, and then I'm sitting down with some friends to do some short interviews. That's going to be cut throughout the episode, which will be a panel discussion about The Phantom Menace. And I wrote some questions for us to ask, uh, and uh, Daniel O'Connell was actually very instrumental in me putting this whole idea together. So he is going to co-host this first episode with me. Uh, I'm not 100% sure when it's going to be released. We're actually recording it tomorrow, uh, tomorrow being Tuesday, the day that I released this podcast. So we're recording tomorrow. Uh, I ordered a fold-out uh, picnic table from Amazon and a whole bunch more pop filters so we could sit around and talk about this with uh, the five of us. It's going to be Ryan Casey, Daniel O'Connell, Jenny Krantz, uh, Johnny Unicorn and me, and we're going to be talking about The Phantom Menace. We're going to be answering questions to try to determine if the movie is remembered fairly. Uh, so are, are we, as a collective nerd culture, are we giving this movie its credit? Are we giving it its fair shake? Or are we just you know, relegating it to the depths of uh, Rotten Tomatoes hell? Uh, it's a question that's really important to me. You know, the way that we as a culture perceive art is really important and interesting to me. And I just think this is going to be the coolest opportunity to, you know, really examine that idea with a micro with a microscope and say, is this fair? Uh, are we being fair to George Lucas with our vitriol against this movie? Is there anything in this movie that's worth seeing? And if so, uh, does that make the things that are abominably terrible forgivable? Or maybe not, I mean, forgivable is the wrong word, because let's be honest, midi-chlorians are unforgivable. But if we don't like midi-chlorians, does that mean that we can't like the rest of the movie? And that's what we're going to try to discuss and decide. Uh, so I just had this great experience watching this movie. Um, but, you know, maybe I'm just like riding the high of enjoying it for the first time since I f saw it for the first time in the theaters. where I, I kind of enjoyed it the first time I saw it, and I went back and saw it three more times in the three theaters, and by the fourth time I was like, fuck this movie. This movie's fucking garbage. Uh, and then just hated it forever. And whenever I tried to watch it after that, I would just get instantly angry and depressed. Because there's, no, I mean, there's no Han Solo. There's no, uh, there's no like real camaraderie or friendship. There's nothing that really attracted me to the first movies. But let's throw that all away and let's look at it for what it is. Uh, you know, warts and all, Jar Jar Binks and all. Let's say, is this movie complete garbage or is there something here that's worth watching? That lightsaber fight at the end was epic, awesome. I, I've always loved that. Uh, and if I get any Star Wars that I love, maybe it's worth having all this garbage that I don't like. Can we pick and choose what we like about movies? Uh, these, are, these are important questions. These are things we're going to answer in Sci-Fi on Trial to the best of our ability. So keep your eyes out for Sci-Fi on Trial, brand new podcast coming out soon. I started a new Twitter account, at Sci-Fi on Trial. I've done nothing with it yet. There's uh, one follower, and it's me. But if you want to, jump on Twitter and follow at Sci-Fi on Trial. Uh, and then you can keep up to date with the news on when that episode is going to be released. And uh, I've also I've been having a little bit of a interesting experience on Twitter this week where I just started searching for people who like sci-fi to try to talk to them about it. And I, I don't know why I'd never thought to do that before, but I connected with this guy, Evan. He's at from the wastes on Twitter. 
and we've just been chatting about sci-fi for the last couple of days. It's been great. It's been so cool to just connect with someone I've never met before. And I mean, that's like the whole point of Twitter and I never really got it until this week. So if you're out there and you want to talk to me about sci-fi, for the love of God, I want to talk to you. <laughs> uh, I'm at sci-fi project on Twitter. Um, yeah, so that's my rant for the beginning of this episode. And we're going to get back to this conversation with me and Naomi Adele Smith, which I'm sure you're going to enjoy. Uh, and here we go. A group of Google neuromancers came and did the puzzle room. and What a great word. I know. I was like, wait a minute. That's magic, isn't it? Yeah. They were like, yeah, yeah. So what they do, what they're doing, I guess, is like taking really thin slices of a brain and like imaging all of the neurons and synapses. And so I'm, oh my God. I think it sounds awesome. Like hopefully we'll find out a lot about brain connections. That's incredible. That. Yeah. Have you seen that? They have built a robot that looks like Philip K. Dick. <laughs> what does it do? It talks to you. It like sits. It, it it's kind of like lounging in a chair. Uh, it's got this horrifying skin mask on, and like the back of its head is open, and all these wires are sticking out. And it was built to look like Philip K. Dick. And there's a video out there of them talking to it, and they ask it, "Are you going to rise up and take over the world like Terminator?" And its response was, um, well, if we ever do, you're my friend, so I'll make sure you're treated well when we have a human zoo. Oh, I, I saw the thing about human zoo, but I didn't yeah. watch the, yeah. Wow. It was a little horrifying. And yeah. I know that like some of the responses were programmed, but this, this robot was designed to uh, improvise. Mm. So as it talks to you, it picks up on what you're saying and will say things that are not in its programming. So I don't know if that quote was programmed or not. Now, is it fully functional? Just <laughs> uh, remind me of data. Like, fully. Fully. <laughs> I'm programmed in a variety of techniques. <laughs> uh, I mean, Philip K. Dick. Come on. <laughs> Have you read any Philip K. Dick? Yeah. Uh, maybe five or six or seven Yeah, books. that's about what I've read. Yeah. Have you read, uh, let's see, I've read Ubik, which I loved. Counterclock World, which is my favorite. I haven't read that one. It's fucking great. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Man in the High Tower. Do Androids Dream of Man Electric Sheep actually gave me heartburn? And I've never had heartburn before. Really? It's like the only time I've had it was like I finished that book and I just was just lying there. and then Crazy. It's like heartburn. Oh, that's weird. I went through a Philip K. Dick phase in middle school. So I, ba I barely remember it. Like yeah. I remember what I loved and didn't love. I remember Counterclock World pretty well because I was so into it. But I need to go back and read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and then me and Dan are going to do a podcast about Blade Runner. Oh, Dan yeah. Roger. He loves yeah. Philip K. Dick. Yeah, he wrote those songs about Blade Runner, but it was yeah. about the book, not, yeah. not the movie. Yeah. You guys should talk. Have you read Lord of the Rings? Yes. You you and Dan should talk about that, because for the majority of the time that I was hanging out with him a lot, he was slowly making his way through those books. Like, really? Yeah. Interesting. 
He's such a he's such a hobbit. He's exactly. Like, he's just got the he's got the hobbit soul. The merriness. The merriness. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It comes in pints. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about more um, withholding information in sci-fi. Uh, do yeah. you have any ex examples that you thought of? Um, let's see. Well, I got I got sidetracked by all the fantasy stuff when I was thinking about it because what yeah, made yeah. me think of it was Robin Hobb initially, like yeah. Fitz. What what but, did it what did it mean to you in the in the Fitz books in the in the Farsi books? Or well, and also the other thing is I'm watching Buffy right now because oh, I have never done that. Me too. And, what really? season are you on? Uh, six. Oh, you're way ahead of me. I'm on season three. Yeah, and Buffy does it all the time. She, like, yeah. freaking doesn't tell anyone anything. Yeah. Even though, why doesn't she trust her friends? Yeah, it gets frustrating after a while in a TV show where a character is withholding. and they Constantly. And they've realized that that has caused several people to die. <laughs> and they just, like, can't get over it to tell anyone anything. Yeah. Frasier does it too. It's not as oh, like yeah. it's not as serious, but there's all this Niles, may I see you in the kitchen and then yeah. they're like <laughs> you can't tell them that my boss is actually a prostitute or you know, whatever. The best one is when Frasier's accidentally on a date with his boss. Um his boss is gay and Frasier doesn't realize this. And then everyone else knows it but Frasier, and then the best moment is like Niles pulls Frasier outside, he says, Dad wanted to tell you, but I won the coin toss. <laughs> Point mm, us. Yeah, so like with Fitz and Robin Hobb, I find all the secret keeping to be totally believable. But like with Buffy and Fraser, it's more of a shouldn't you have learned by now that um that when you tell people stuff about what demon you just summoned accidentally, then yeah. the demon gets killed faster? That kind yeah. of thing. Or Well, let's talk about one of the classics, which is Star Wars. Okay. Uh Obi Wan Kenobi does not tell Luke that Darth Vader is his father. Mm -hmm. uh, Yoda does not tell Luke that Darth Vader is his father. Um, this is one of, I think, one of the best parts of the original trilogy is that your heroes, your hero mentors are flawed. Um, they don't believe in Luke wholeheartedly because Anakin turned. So they're afraid to give him all the information because yeah. they feel that if they present him with all the information, then maybe he will choose the dark side so they're taking his autonomy away from him by doing that exactly yeah. they're taking away his free will because how can you have free will when you don't even know all the information all the information yeah. yeah uh i remember being a kid and having that fact presented to me it's like oh my god you're right obi-wan and yoda totally lied to, to him yeah uh you thought they were so wise yeah and cool and yeah. Yeah. Like I remember when the special edition Obi Wan action figure came out that was Obi Wan as a ghost, and it was uh, like just just white plastic in the shape of Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> That's all it was, and I got it, and I was so excited to have it because I love the scene in Return of the Jedi when Obi Wan talks about from a certain point of view, and Luke kind of just accepts it, and so because of that, I accepted it, and it wasn't until I got older that I really started to question what obi-wan had done at the very least they should at least have told luke and leia that they were related in case they ended up hooking up or something which you know? yeah totally yeah like that's just polite that's just common decency yeah exactly by the way this girl you think you're hot is your sister <laughs> oh good thank you i will keep my hands off yeah yeah and then leia's like i know i have always known 
If you always knew, why'd you kiss me, you know? Uh, is she from South Alderaan? You know, maybe maybe in South Alderaan, <laughs> there's no taboo about incest. Yeah, yeah, things are a little looser down there. Yeah. Or were. Yeah. So how do you feel as an audience member when you discover these things? Um, I mean, it's good to, like, I like it when they set someone up to be a wise mentor type of person and then show their flaws. Yeah. Uh, but you're like, you still trust them. You know, they had their reasons. They still did overall good. And we wouldn't have had a story without it. Right. But yeah, it's questionable. I wonder, like, if the story would have been as cool if they'd just been honest the whole time. And I wonder if being honest about that is more true to their actual character. Not that, yeah. you know, everything's fiction, so what is their actual character anyway? But I find character consistency to be, like, one of my defining traits and something I like. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So it's if I so don't, big. So if I don't believe the character would have done something dumb or, like, you know, done something like that, then it's harder for me to um, enjoy the plot. Yeah, this is also an interesting example because there are theories out there and pretty it's pretty much been confirmed that george lucas did not know where the story was going to go mm. that darth vader being luke's father was not in the original treatment that that's something he thought of while he was writing while they were writing empire strikes back um like the original outline for empire strikes back does not include that so then the question becomes was it a secret so much so that it wasn't in the outline or was it just not thought of yet yeah yeah and then you have like back you know like backtracking and yeah. make things work in canon and only one person knows the answer and he's not telling yeah, yeah. man yeah that's interesting I'm yeah not sure. on top of that i'm it's um it's actually more certain that luke and leia were not originally supposed to be brother and sister oh that that was thought of later also hmm. and the reason that they did that was because uh well in empire strikes back when yoda says there was another or there is another, mm -hmm. when that boy was our last hope. No, no. there is another. Yeah. Originally, they didn't know who that other was. Oh, okay. So that was just to set up the fact that if Luke fails, there is another hope, you know? A new hope. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think that their characters, Obi-Wan and Yoda maybe wouldn't have necessarily withheld that information right if, that's what i'm questioning if the information had been there in the first place and that's right yeah that's sort of on george lucas at that point but. yeah and then it's a it's a clever retcon mm -hmm. the certain point of view thing but i gotta be honest i think that it fleshes out the world so much more uh and as much as i hate the prequels <laughs> uh seeing obi-wan's journey was really interesting and and the the journey the one thing I like about the prequels is actually the overall story, which I know sounds crazy, but I read the no, novelization no. of episode one and I was actually pretty impressed I like by the it. story. It's just really like weirdly expressed yeah. in the in the prequels, like really weird yeah, timing and totally. composition. But the, the idea that you have these flawed mentor characters and seeing them when they're younger and making flawed decisions for an entire galaxy... Uh, if these flawed characters can't make those decisions, then who can and should anyone? Mm -hmm. But someone's got to have order somehow. Like, you can't live in a society without structure. So how do you make that structure? Yeah, I mean... Communism, I think, I think governments think that they have to. It's like, 
you know, with people with bad health or they make that decision to not tell their family until they're better or something. And governments yeah. do the same thing. They're like, oh, well, that kind of sucks. Let's not tell the populace um, because they'll freak out and think that everything's bad and we don't right. want that. So we'll just wait until it gets better and then let them know that it did happen. And so that's... You totally reminded me of something. What? Uh, one of the biggest withholdings that happens in sci-fi constantly is that aliens are already here and we can't know about it. Um, Stargate, mm. Men in Black, mm -hmm. uh, X-Files, X -Files, all of these things about government cover-ups, government conspiracies. conspiracies. Uh, the first time I saw Men in Black, that scene where... Uh, <laughs> I love this movie. Uh, they're so great. Where Will Smith has just learned that aliens are among us and he's sitting on the park bench trying to decide if he wants to enter that world or not. Uh, the world where he will know the truth but he can't tell anyone and he can never really have a relationship with another human being besides Agent K. Yeah. Uh, Which is fine because... Because he's great. Because they're adorable together. Because <laughs> they're perfect together. Yeah. I thought that scene was so powerful. Just is, is knowledge worth losing the life that you know and love? What do you think? I don't know. I feel like it might be a false dichotomy because of what we were talking about with like, is it really necessary to hide that knowledge? Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely had to, you know, make that choice and believed very strongly that there was only the two choices. So I feel like in that case, I would go for knowledge. Yeah. Just, I'm all about knowledge. That's kind of why I like picked this topic or like thought it was interesting because information flow and the stopping of information and how that affects like how people make choices is really mm. fascinating to me so i would always go for knowledge but also i think you know i'm really bad at keeping secrets and like not telling people other people's secrets i just want all the information to be shared so my opinion on that whole thing it's like you know why would you think that humans would freak out yeah you know we we do pretty well in crises we don't do so well when we're bored and there's nothing happening of importance yeah. we do better when it's like down to the bone and we have to figure something out but people are so hateful uh like prejudice racism uh we live in seattle which is this wonderful sociological achievement mm -hmm. i think where the city is very accepting and uh i feel like i can be whoever i want in the city and be accepted which is awesome um but so many places in the world are not like that. Yeah. Well, and that is why we need to know that there are aliens. Like in Independence Day, the whole world came together to yeah. fight the alien invaders. And, you know, I don't know if it eliminated prejudice and racism, but it was definitely like a big step toward, yeah. you know, world unification instead totally. of... And yeah. it's the same story in the Star Trek universe where uh, humanity is not ready to... Uh, like the Vulcans won't reveal themselves to humanity until humanity has shown at least a modicum of self-awareness, mm -hmm. you know, where we're a little bit ready to step into that galactic stage. Uh, yeah. I've been thinking about, have you seen the Mothman prophecies? No. Uh, it's a great movie. There's this urban legend of a creature called the Mothman. Um, and there's the book, there's the book called the Mothman prophecies, which is written by this guy, John Keel, who collected all these stories because over uh, like a year, like a year period, there was like a hundred something sightings of this Mothman creature in Point Pleasant, which is in 
a place, what, New Jersey? I don't remember. <laughs> so it's one of those urban legends. It's kind of like UFOs, something like that, where everybody saw it, you know, where it wasn't just one person. It was a whole ton of people. Like this movie really affected me. Uh, I'm actually going to do a podcast about it coming up just because it's so interesting to me. But the, just to kind of gloss over it, maybe there are creatures that exist in a different dimension on Earth. Or not necessarily dimension, but different wave, wavelength or something where we can't really see them, but uh, but they are here. Mm-hmm. Uh, like highly evolved beings of some kind. And I love stuff like that. I know, I love it. And it kind of crosses the line of... See, science. my favorite science fiction is the one that I believe. The one that I think could be real. Mm-hmm. Like Star Trek sells me con- continually that it could be real. Yeah. Uh, it's because it is what I want humanity to become. Yeah. So I want to believe in it. Especially holodecks and no money. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, don't have to pay for holodecks. And it's the, the way perfect that, system. And the way that Riker sits in a chair. Uh, yeah. I, I was talking to this girl that lives at the building I work at yesterday named Jessica. And she was saying how much she hates Riker because whenever he talks to somebody, he hovers over them with his like crotch in their back. Like, <laughs> have you noticed that? He just like gets his... He, like, like gets his uh, knee up on the console yeah, and okay, his like dick okay. is just hovering right above their back. It's very it's a it's an intimidation move. But isn't it doesn't he have like weird leg or back problems and that's why he always sits funny and maybe like cuz oh. I have you know I have this thing where I always have to sit in a weird way and have my like legs up at strange angles cuz it's more comfortable that way so yeah. I think that his crotch backing might be unintentional. Interesting. But, I've never thought of that. Because, like, Jeb Bartlett on The West Wing, he puts a jacket on with a flourish because he can't raise one of his arms. Oh, that's oh, that's cute. I yeah, never watched Martin The West Sheen. Wing. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, anyway, so Mothman. So <laughs> there's this idea that there's these creatures that might exist. Uh, and then who knows what they are? Maybe they're, like, a highly evolved form of humanity. Maybe they are extraterrestrials. Uh, and they try to... And they reveal themselves to us sometimes. I don't want to say more than that because I'm going to... I want people to go watch the Mothman prophecies. Okay. And, uh, I want to watch it now that you I love describe it. it. I love this movie. Laura Linney's in it. Oh. And Richard Gere. Whoa. It's good stuff. Yeah. I believe anything that Laura Linney tells me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then I was thinking about this in terms of our society and what if this is real and what if they are extraterrestrials of some kind and they're already here but they don't reveal themselves to us because the, I mean, what they are met with is fear, mm-hmm. you know? Like massive, massive fear where when you see this giant winged humanoid creature with glowing red eyes, you fucking try to kill it, you know, because you're so scared. Yeah. And if aliens looked like cute dogs, it would be fine. Like if a bunch of Mileses showed up, you know, I was walking Miles this morning and everybody looks at Miles and smiles, but he is a rescue dog and every once in a while he will... Um, be violent towards someone and mm-hmm. i know this about him and i've he's gotten way better mm-hmm. over the course of his life but he will always be a rescue dog he will always have emotional damage yeah uh, but people try to pet miles and you know if they scare him he'll try to snip at them and if what what if like mars attacks situation happens and the aliens show up and we're like trusting because they're cute and then they try to kill us yeah reverse of that what if like there's a, a benevolent creature who looks like a horrifying mothman and is has our best interests at heart, Aww. but it won't reveal itself to us because we react in fear towards things that look different. Yeah. You've watched Venture Brothers, right? Yeah. I'm like halfway through it. I fucking love it. I watched, I watched a bunch of it multiple times. 
So I'm still on season three because I'm just like trying to soak it in. Okay, then I won't talk about this. Okay. But there is something that happens that's sort of relevant. Oh, cool. That uh, I think is funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so I think that's like the impetus behind hiding this information from us is that they've seen how we react. Yeah. The government has seen how people react uh, when information is released and it's with fear and anger. And how do you keep control over a society that is fearful and angry of you. Yeah, and we are xenophobic and yeah. definitely superficial. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, a race of like, an alien race of cute Mileses that was actually super evil would definitely be able to take over the planet. Yeah. Because we would not put up a fight. Yeah, and a, a race of aliens that were here to bring us nothing but eternal life and happiness mm -hmm. would be killed if yeah. they were ugly. Yeah, oh my yeah. God, Jesse. Don't you think that's true, though? Yes. Well, you know, I think that it could be true in in some realities. I I have a little bit of faith in humanity. Like, I think that the fear and horrifiedness that people react with um, tends to be more toward the unknown than the known. So when they find out that someone's keeping something from them or they think they're being deceived, they'll be a lot more angry than if they actually just have to come face to face with this monstery thing and then the monster tries to communicate with them, they might be more up for it than yeah. otherwise, but we don't really get tested on that. Yeah. So. I mean, maybe we have been and we failed and that's why we don't know about it. Yeah, maybe. But in the Stargate universe, uh, in the TV shows, they have an SG one, they have a Stargate under a mountain where they go on missions all over the galaxy and protect us from evil creatures uh and it's very important that it remain a secret because they assume that if the information got out there would be panic is so that's an interesting theme that pops up in sci-fi a lot is like waiting for a culture to be at an appropriate level of maturity before yeah. like putting something else on them giving them new information or something yeah like i wonder if that actually ever happens or if it's like when you don't tell a kid about sex or something and then they like just never know about it and it warps them because they could have used the information. So yeah. I wonder if we like, great point. I wonder if this happens in sci-fi, like we get babied in some ways uh, and they should have just like thrown us into it. There's that Calvin and Hobbes where they're trying to go into the, the lake and it's super cold and Calvin goes in like an inch at a time and Hobbes just like wants to go straight in. Yeah. 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 So That's I don't know. It's a tough thing. I think about this a lot because I think about sci-fi all, all day long every day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Clearly. Yeah. Because there's... Like, can we get to a point where we are mature enough to handle that or... Yeah. Well, according to Star Trek lore, that point happens after World War Three. Mm -hmm. When there's little enough of humanity left that we kind of have to band together a little bit. Yeah, it helps to have, yeah, trauma and yeah, strife that trauma. we're fighting. Yeah, and then when we create warp drive, uh, warp drive is the, the litmus test for being, ready, mm -hmm. because when you have the ability to, travel incredibly fast, you're gonna run into someone. Um, but that means that you probably reach a level of technological sophistication in which you're ready. Uh, that's the assumption, anyway. One of my favorite books, it's called Macroscope. It's a standalone book. It's by Piers Anthony, who wrote these ridiculous fantasy books later on. But in the 70s, he was writing really bizarre science fiction. And 
this concept pops up in macroscope where there is uh, an extraterrestrial race that's um, sending a message that Earth picks up on. But it if people who are of an IQ high enough, like, receive the message and watch the projection, if they get a certain point into it, they'll just become brain dead. Whoa. And... Uh, people who are under that IQ just won't understand anything at all. And oh so it won't God. affect them. And it turns out that the message is a way to test emotional, like societal emotional maturity. Like you have to be smart and like societally mature in order to see, like view the message and not go brain dead. Wow. So, and that then if they're not mature enough, it ends up like culling all of the smartest people who could provide the technology that would be horrible for an immature society to have. So it's kind of like a Whoa. double wow. thing. That's um, so interesting. What yeah. An interesting idea. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting book. There's a lot of that, like the, um, taking away people's autonomy because you don't think they're ready for a thing pops up a lot. Yeah. It's a tough thing to think about because... Uh, one of the most telling experiences I've ever had was when I went to visit a friend in Florida and I was walking through the airport and the news was on. It was during the presidential election with, I think it was Bush and Gore and everything in the media in San Diego, which is in California, which is a blue state was, you know, Gore is the right choice. Bush is, is crazy and, and stupid. You know, that's like how the media spun Bush was that he was just straight up stupid. And yeah. then I went to this other state that was a red state. Well, maybe. Who knows about Florida? Um, but <laughs> it's all America's the... wang. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> it's Simpsons, not me. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I like it. Uh, in, in Florida, all of the news was, like, Bush is the next leader that we need. Uh, like, Gore is a crazy liberal. And it was the exact opposite. And I was, and I was in like 10 seconds of walking off the plane. I'm like, oh my God, the world is not what I thought it was. You know, <laughs> like news is tailored for the culture in the area you're in. Yeah. So you never really know what you're getting with the news. Yeah. And if your news is the only way for you to hear about things that are happening in the world, you never really know what's happening in the world. When I was in Alaska, it was right when Sarah Palin got the nomination. Oh, wow. And I was in a remote area where I didn't have access to the news. I'd never heard of her. All I knew was what the locals were telling me about her. And yeah. they were like, we've got a hot governor. And then they were like, oh, my God, we have to come into the bar that you work at and watch her acceptance speech. And so they all came in, and they were, like, so into her. And I wow. was just sitting there like... I wonder what I will find out about her when I get back to Seattle <laughs> and like get to hear the other perspective. And, but it really, you know, it really drove into me how location can affect that so yeah. much because the people in Alaska, like they weren't crazy. You know, I, I clearly think that Sarah Palin would have been awful vice president, but these people, they are isolated. They feel like the rest of the country doesn't care about Alaska and like the government never pays attention to Alaska. And so like Sarah Palin represented that like, oh, finally, like we're right. being taken seriously right. kind of thing for them. And I had never even it's considered that before. Yeah, And then I think uh, seeing that through the lens of, of a sci-fi story can really help you process that information mm -hmm. uh ender's game being a great example like going back uh, to that yeah where, yeah uh, of propaganda of propaganda yeah mm -hmm. and how that affects the way that you think <gasps> what firefly firefly <laughs> hit me 
Uh, well, yeah, same stuff. Yeah. The Alliance. The Alliance. They, uh, spoilers for Firefly. Everyone's seen Firefly, up. right? <laughs> I, I would assume so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Alliance created the Reavers. Yeah. Yeah. But they couldn't admit it. Right. And so, like, the propaganda, like, they're people who went mad. You right. Know, right. When they to saw... keep their control. Yeah. Yeah. To keep their control. And, oh, man. That's such a great show. I was thinking about this that, uh, you know, I, I do a weekly podcast and sometimes it's like, well, what am I going to do next week? Which is kind of scary, but, um, <laughs> but, but I had this idea, like, what if I did every episode of Firefly? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, because I feel like Firefly is one of those things that is just so precious to me. And so to so many people that the only way to do it justice would to be to do every episode. I was trying to do justice to next generation by doing every season. And I feel like I'm missing so much because now, now that it's back out on Blu-ray, on Netflix, I'm going back and rewatching everything and just picking up all these wonderful details that I had forgotten to mention on the first season podcast that me and Audrey did. Yeah. Um, so, but then it would be, I could do like a couple months where I just do Firefly. Mm-hmm. If you if you listen to this podcast and you want to hear that, let me know. Because <laughs> uh, if you don't want to hear that, then I won't do it because, uh, you know. Everybody wants to hear about Firefly. I You'll have actually, to join me. you have to help me out. When yeah. I I'm in a book club. I, sorry, I skipped yesterday, by the way, guys. Um <laughs> But we're reading right now stories, which is book short stories edited by Neil Gaiman and, uh-huh. um, or co-edited. And one of the stories is titled Leaf in the Wind, uh, L-E-I-F, like it's a person's name in the story. Yeah. And it's sort of like a the collection of stories is mostly a little bit fantasy, a little bit horror, but this is one of the only ones that's like sci-fi-ish. So it, there's a character named Leaf, they're out in space. And when we talked about the story in book club, I was like, well, I liked the story a lot, but I just couldn't get past the title. <laughs> and everyone was like, what do you mean? Like, well, you know, the Firefly reference. Yeah. Like, what? And I was like, but do, I mean, isn't the first thing that you think of when you hear Leaf the phrase the Leaf in the Absolutely. Wind? Isn't that the absolute? They're like, no, I mean, I think they didn't have to mean it like that. Like Neil Gaiman was in charge of this. You don't yeah. think he noticed Was it written that? after Serenity came out? Oh, yeah. Then absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, then it's definitely a reference. I would say so, but uh, yeah. yeah, no, so I... How do you feel about the movie Serenity versus the show? I mean, I'm easy. I really like the movie just because, you know, it answered a lot of questions, but I think it... I wish that it was a whole season of a show instead of a movie. Yeah. It was I just a lot. I struggled with that movie so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Aww. the way that I felt about Firefly is the only comparable sci-fi show in my life to Star Trek The Next Generation, where I fell for it as hard. Lost was actually comparable until it started to suck. (laughs) The way I felt about Lost is the way I feel about... Like, the last season of Lost, I feel very similar to how I feel about Star Wars Episode One, Mm. Or, like, the last season of Battlestar or something. I actually... uh, I did not hate the last season of Battlestar. That's strong praise. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, Firefly just became such a huge part of my life as far as my own personal fandom, you know, mm-hmm. where I just loved every moment of it. I, I had dreams about being on Serenity. I wanted to live on that ship and I wanted to be free in space with those people. And, uh, and, and Plaque Smith and Unicorn, you and I used to play the theme song all the time. Yeah, yeah. It was awesome. We, oh, we should record that. I need to give it to Trisha. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. She, she, I owe it to her for a Kickstarter thing. Oh, so cool. you should get in on it. 
What was the Kickstarter thing? Um, it was the last Autumn Electric Kickstarter. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, like, I see. I you owe it to her for that. I owe it to her for oh, that. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm there. I'm so there. <laughs> if the drums are set up at your place, I'll just come over and record it. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. Yes. Uh, but the movie lacked the the character. Yeah, they were all kind of... Um, they were Hollywood versions of themselves. Yes. They were it, a, that a little bit... That me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then what happened with two of the characters, very obvious if you've seen the movie. Um, one of them I was okay with because I kind of felt like it drove the story. The other one was meant to drive the story. I am a leaf in the wind. It was meant to drive the story, but to me, uh, the rest of the story just went off the rails because, mm-hmm. um, so I'm talking about like the death of a character without being specific. Uh, I, I watched the commentary and Joss Whedon said that he did that to raise the stakes so that if like this this character can die, then anyone could die. But yeah. but the thing is, is that that lowers the stakes for me because I'm like, well, anyone can die, so fuck this movie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Game of Thrones. Yeah. You know, like in Game of Thrones, sure, you start off like that, but yeah, with Firefly, I I agree, it seemed a little uh, unnecessary. Yeah. But I mean, of course, I love the character, and I was heartbroken, so of course yeah. I'm gonna say that they shouldn't have been killed, but. Yeah, I just felt like it didn't it didn't pay off the way that it was intended to, and then it was a waste. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. It's like, can we argue with the creator of a show's oh, decision yeah. like that? That's a big question. Like with, you know, Obi-Wan and yeah, yeah, totally. Yoda and this. And... If they, yeah. So I'm, I'm such a huge fan of bashing episode one, but I'm also, uh, I'm a recovering George Lucas hater. What? <laughs> Like, where I, I no longer blame George Lucas, personally, because I did when I was a kid. Mm. And I, I think that that is an immature response to to physically hate someone that you've never met because they did something with characters that you didn't like. Yeah. It's such an extreme <laughs> reaction. And well, it's a little fanboy. Totally. But... And I'm, we've all been there. Yes. But I, I'm a huge advocate of letting creators do what they want with their characters. I think that like having a reasonable discourse about it and disliking it is totally fair. Yeah. And I, as much as I dislike what happened in Serenity, I still have so much respect for Joss Whedon. I, I'm going back and watching Buffy just because I love Joss Whedon. Yeah, Buffy's yeah. great. Yeah, I, you know, I struggled through the first couple of seasons. Oh, I started in season three. So. That's what people tell me to do, <laughs> but I'm now on season three, so it'll get better. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, yeah, Joss Whedon. Apparently, I just read this quote because I was reading about Buffy or something. It's like. All of his shows are about creating family. Yeah. And I think that's a really important, you know, concept. And That's why I liked Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. season one so much. And that's why I didn't like season two as much because I felt like that wasn't the focus. Season one, I almost felt like I was getting Firefly back. I told this to someone (laughs) and they were like really pissed at me because they thought it was crazy. But season one of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they're flying around on uh, what they call the bus, which is a plane that's kind of like Air Force One style plane. where It's a really nice plane. They all have their own bunks on it and they go and go on missions around the world. Oh, it sounds like tour. It was great. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. And it had this family vibe to it. And I felt like the bus was supposed to be Serenity. You know, it was similar. It had a similar like hatch going out the back. Oh, uh, bad catch. Bad catch. <laughs> and Agent Coulson is is like the Mal Reynolds, Reynolds character. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it really worked for me on like every level um, because it had that feeling of family. And Joss Whedon does that so well. And he did that in the biggest way he's ever done with the Avengers. And 
I thought that Age of Ultron was great too. I mean, I haven't seen it. I need to see it. Oh god, yeah. Yeah. Avengers is so good. Yeah. But there was all this backlash against Joss Whedon after Age of Ultron came out, and which sucks because all the complaints were about the way that uh, the female character was treated, uh, Black Widow, Scarlett Johansson's character, mm-hmm. and I thought that she was treated very respectfully and in a a really cool way, but people. Because she was in a romantic situation, people just wrote it off as saying it was anti-feminist, Ugh. which is so dangerous because to say that a woman can never be in love is crazy, you know? Yeah. Or that a woman can never be interested in a man because it's not feminist. That's Haven't crazy. Haven't they ever heard of power couples? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, would you agree with that? Like, I would consider you a feminist. I am a feminist. Yeah, I, absolutely. I would say so, yeah. yeah. Um, I should see the movie so I can make up my own mind about it. Um, oh like, yeah, absolutely. I, I know that there was similar talk when Mad Max came out. Did you see that yet? I you did. saw it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And I know they like consulted a feminist advisor about the script so that really? they could like but people were still saying that there it was like male gazy because of the costumes of the concubines. I agree. And... I had more issues with the feminist portrayal of Mad Max than with Age of Ultron. Interesting. Um, yeah, I was I've you know, as a woman I find that I can't always be objective about that kind of thing because I've like got all these programmed responses and I'm like, right. oh, whoa, like you can totally see your nipples through that dress the whole movie. Right. And uh, is that okay? Yeah. But the... it's just nipples technically, but do they, but are they doing it in a way that's, you know. Respectful. Respectful. Yeah. I, my, when I don't have a problem with it is when it's equal, like equal objectification. Mm-hmm. Is great. That's what I was shooting for with Time Equal Child. Equal objectification is great. Yeah. <laughs> Jesse Mercury. Yes. <laughs> I'll stand yeah. by that. Like in Time yeah, Child. Yeah, Time Child is full of Mark's dong. Yeah. <laughs> He's now a, a famous porn star, Robbie yeah. Echo. And Carla Cush is now a famous porn star as well. And she's in that video. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is crazy. Wow, yeah. She's doing really well. Somebody recently commented on Time Child with just the words Robbie Echo with exclamation points. So... It's kind of funny because like neither of their careers had started at that point. Yeah, yeah, they, um, were, they were so wholesome back then. Yeah, <laughs> they were. No, that that's a joke. But I was on tour with Mark once. Mark, I, I fucking love Mark. Yeah, he's just like a wonderful person with like a great big heart. He's just yeah, so great. Uh, the biggest heart. Yeah, and he give you the shirt off his back even if you didn't need a shirt. And also big penis. Yeah. yeah. Well, I yeah, I wouldn't know, but yeah. Well, <laughs> check out Robbie Echo on. <laughs> On your local pornographic website. Um, but yeah, so I was shooting for like equal objectification because I mm-hmm. wanted to have like sexual content. I wanted it to be... Uh, and like Jenny, who made up the concept for the video and, and directed it, was really into having like sexual content, which I was super on board with. Yeah. Uh, it's rock a great and roll. video. It's sexy. It's in space. You know, I wanted to be wearing <laughs> bondage leather and tights. And, yeah. Um, and she wanted to have this shot, where, which is in the the final video of us like in the shower like me like surrounded by like scantily clad women in the shower mm-hmm. and i told her like well we can do that as long as there's another dude in the shower with us so, that's great see yeah. that's where that's where robert heinlein fails right in his sex stuff because his this description of the book i'm like i feel like this is failing <laughs> his male character is only interested in women and they'll have lots of like orgies and polyamory but there's never anything uh, not heterosexual. Yeah. It's just a bunch of dudes having sex with a bunch of different women and the women having sex with different dudes, but the women aren't into each other. The dudes aren't into each other. Yeah. Like, what's the point? That's just... What is the point? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was... I loved... I 
I don't I don't know. Love is a strong word. I liked the movie Mad Max, but I wasn't sure about that aspect of it. Yeah, I um, agree. I really liked it a lot too. Yeah. Uh, but the though those women were eye candy, you know, and isn't eye candy, eye candy for the sake of being eye candy, isn't that part of the problem? But ostensibly they were all perfect or near perfect human specimens that were collected for that very reason because of propagating the race genetically with the horrible emperor whoever he was they totally wrote it into the story yeah which was fine yeah and i would have been okay with it if it weren't for the shot when you first meet them and the water the water it is like a like a uh a music video where there's a bunch of like women in bikinis like molesting an automobile in the rain you know that's like what i was thinking of when i saw that and i felt like it was too much even if they didn't mean it like that technically like that's definitely how it felt to me too and just you know it's probably just that i've been conditioned by society to see women in certain clothing as being sexual even though it's just bodies and clothing and water and sand and slow motion and glistening and trickling and beads and curves it's funny because I, I do, you know, I'm a big fan of sex and I'm mm. a big fan of, of, of women being naked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not that I don't want to see that. So I don't know what the answer is. You know, it's like, I don't know. You know, Firefly actually did a pretty damn good job of this. The first episode of Firefly, do you remember when Inara is introduced? Yeah. She's dr- piloting her shuttle back into. Yeah. After, after already. she. Like had, had a, sex with some guy. Yeah, and, yeah. And it was kind of like interestingly shot, and it was very, very purposefully artistically shot. Mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. And she's she's a character who's doing something of her own free will because it gives her a good place in society, and she an agency. An agency, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she's her own person. Yeah, she's one of my favorite characters. Yeah, and it's not it's. It was a really interesting portrayal of basically a prostitute, you mm-hmm. know, um, companion. Yeah. Classy, classy companion lady. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was it was almost like the way it was shot in Mad Max, like the camera angles they chose that felt uh, gratuitous yeah. to me. In that one scene. The rest yeah. of the movie I had no problem with. Mm-hmm. Just that one scene. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we thought that because we're bad and we were objectifying them. Maybe. And, uh, other people who were better people than us didn't have that same reaction. Maybe. But, uh, I, it's hard to say. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's so subjective. And in all these superhero movies like The Avengers, everyone's being objectified. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone's wearing the tightest outfit you've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, so this is a big complaint is that Scarlett Johansson is wearing a ridiculously sexy outfit. But I would argue so is Captain America. You know? I mean, if she wore a bucket... Yeah, she'd still be gorgeous. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, um, so I so I have no problem with it in that world because it's equal. Uh, that's just how people are treated. Or that know? one that is that next generation episode where they go to the planet and everyone runs everywhere. Oh, the Edo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Justice season one. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched that a couple of days ago. Yeah. And yeah. they're all wearing these ridiculous outfits, but it's men and women, and they're just all like running around having orgies. Yeah, I say that episode is the definition of sex positive, you know, <laughs> uh, and I have no problem with it whatsoever. Yeah, it's great. Like some of the main characters, like the people who are leaders of the ship end up like in orgy room and nobody cares and they're like right. adults and they right. take their responsibilities seriously and then they go have fun. Yeah, I, I would I would argue that sexual content in the media is not the problem. It's the imbalance of it that yeah. is the problem and that 
if feminism can point something out to us, it would be the fact that there is an imbalance. Yeah. What do you think? Like, sex is, you know, for most of the media, sex is about getting guys to buy things by showing them women. Yeah. And you know what's the root of that? I can tell you, as a man, dudes are fucking horny. Like, <laughs> are they? Uh, there have been many moments in my life where I was so horny that I could not control what I was doing or what I was buying. You know? Where I, I made really incredibly stupid decisions because my penis told me to. But you had the choice. You, like, technically... But I guess I don't really understand, since I'm not a guy. Well, but... my question to you is... Does that happen for? Doesn't that happen for women too? I think so. I mean, I yeah, say, I, would I would think so. I like it's hard to say because I've never been a guy. I don't know if it's exactly the same, but yeah, yeah I've made really dumb decisions. Yeah, based so on that. Th this is something that I think is a problem. Oh with... yeah, women's sexuality is like diminished a lot. Yes. in the media. Yeah, like, women aren't supposed to have sex drives at all. Right, and I've met several women whose sex drives were wildly higher than mine. To yes. the point where they were like frightening to me i haven't wow <laughs> <laughs> joke joke <laughs> um I, i've met women that were like outwardly aggressively sexual in a way that made me uncomfortable in, in a way that i think is the way that a lot of women feel around men you know yeah um, like i have walked by the cuff and been catcalled and uh and I've heard guys talking about me, like big scary dudes talking about me as I walked by. Aww. Like, he's like, do you like that? And he was like, of course I like that. <laughs> and I got scared because like I was, you know, alone by myself. I'm like, is this how women feel walking in front of a bar where men are like catcalling them? I would imagine it's similar. Yeah. Yeah. Where you feel like, uh, sure, it's flattering, but also maybe they will cause you bodily harm, you know? Yeah. And it's weird as a woman because, and you understand this too, because of like image insecurity. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, because you're, you know, because you care about presentation yeah. and, you know, you're fashionable. <laughs> I'm vain is what you're saying. It's uh, true. <laughs> yeah. I'm all like a things. woman. I'm, like I'm a vain woman. like a woman. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's... I loved it when I was uh, walking miles regularly and I'd come here after a Mugatu show and you wouldn't be around, but the bathroom would just be full of glitter <laughs> and like fairy wings hanging out to dry. Yeah. And, <laughs> like, yeah. Totally. Um, it's like weird gold things and fishnet tights and all this stuff just hanging up to dry all the time. Yeah. So it's weird, uh, you know, being flattered by that sort of thing because I like when it, if it happens to me, I'm generally more flattered than intimidated, mm -hmm. but I'm also like, well, you know, they're clearly idiots. Um, but because I have like this need to be flattered as a woman or as like a person, I guess, yeah. then it, then I feel bad. I'm like, no, they're doing this thing that's wrong and I shouldn't be happy that someone objectified me. But in a like tiny little way, I, I, you are. I am because of- Because you're objectifiable. And that's a nice Hooray. feeling to, to know that like sometimes it's a nice feeling to know that you are enough of the standard that people look for, that they like what you're putting out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then it's very like, exactly. Uh, there was this moment once for choir where my friend, we were doing a photo shoot and my friend did makeup for everyone because she's a makeup artist. Uh -huh. And she put my face in like full makeup, which I never do. And I looked in a mirror and I was like, oh. I look like a person now, you know, because <laughs> it looks like, you know, in magazines, people are wearing makeup on right. TV. People are wearing makeup and my face was totally different with makeup yeah, on. And totally. I was, but it looked more real. I was like, oh, that's what a human's supposed to look that's like. That's so funny. 
Like you see pictures of uh, like um, Mila Kunis without makeup, and I think, oh my god, she looks like every girl I know instead of this like insane like beacon of Hollywood hotness, which she is. Um, yeah. And it's a weird feeling. It's like, well, is she is she less attractive? I you know, and I would argue no, she's not less attractive without makeup. I would argue that our sensory input has been conditioned by makeup exactly to expect the wrong thing i didn't even know that i'd been that conditioned until i looked at my face with makeup on after you know like being used to it the way it is and sometimes i'll wear like a little eye makeup but never like the full foundation right contouring that kind of thing and so i was just like oh my god that's why i always think i don't look like a person when i look in the mirror because mm. I'm not always wearing all that makeup. And yeah, it was really bizarre for me. Yeah, it's um, funny. Like, if I ever have, like, uh, like, if my skin ever doesn't look smooth, and if mm-hmm. it looks a little red, then I can't even look myself in the mirror because I'm embarrassed. Yeah, I, I like, have always had this habit of having the lights out in the bathroom when I get ready for things, just wow. so I don't see myself in the mirror as clearly. It's... That's sad. <laughs> it blows me out. It's, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been better about it recently. Yeah. Emily once wrote me an email when we were in college together. We were friends. Just a, like, what's up sort of email. But the title of the email was, To the Pretty Girl Who Gets Ready in the Dark. Oh, and wow. And it was, like, the sweetest thing. So, Crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so. I, I recently, like, for a photo shoot and then for a music video shoot, I, like, wore makeup. Just, like, powder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me feel more confident, you know? It made me feel more photographable. Yeah. Uh, more approved, like societally mainstream. You're like, you have the look. Maybe. Well, it just, it helped me to let go of being worried about how I looked and yeah. then perform or, you know, do whatever I needed to do in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I feel the same way about makeup that I do about almost everything else. Which is, it just needs to be equal, you know? Mm -hmm. If women are going to be expected to wear makeup, then so should men. Oh my god, like, office rules about dress and makeup are so uneven. They're very fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, like, try to never work a job where there's a dress code in any way. Basically, that's one of my priorities in life. Interesting. um, But yeah, a lot of them, you know, women are expected to wear makeup. And most of the women I know don't like wearing makeup. Yeah. And they'll do it for work or something if they have to, but it's not. And the ones who do love it should just love it and do it all the time, like, as much as they want. And the ones who don't love it shouldn't have to just, you know, slap it on because yeah, society totally. wants them to. Like, there are, there are women that I know that wear makeup as a ex- expression statement. That's how they express themselves. And that's how they feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh and as much as I would love to live in a world where they could feel good about themselves without makeup, I do think that they should be allowed and encouraged to do whatever it is that makes them feel good about themselves. Because feeling good about yourself is hard, you know? Yeah. Like, learning how to feel good about yourself as a human being is, I say, one of the, like, fundamental empirical struggles of being alive. And I've had, I feel like I've had a lot of success in that. <laughs> Which makes me feel really lucky because mm. I I remember feeling horrible about myself all the time when I was younger. Yeah. Uh, it was never in a super crippling way for me, but I had uh, really long hair and looked like a hippie and could not get girls to save my life, you know? 
So you were all constantly tying yourself to railroad tracks and like girls just wouldn't untie you? Exactly. Yeah. Just let me die Aww. over and over. Oh my God. I died like 18 times. <laughs> um, a woman once told me that girls don't want to date men who have prettier hair than them. And then I cut my hair huh. off. Interesting. Uh, but it's funny, like as I got older, I think mostly because I played in Mugatu, um, I started to feel really sexy. And it, it was... <laughs> It was like an internal thing that happened, and then women started responding to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I, then I really in, internalized the idea that feeling sexy is the difference. Like when you look at people, you see how they feel about themselves. You don't see their face. Mm -hmm. Like I, so many people that I've seen like growing up, and then I see them again when they're older, and they have this air of confidence, and they're fucking hot. You know. And, and that's what it is that, that makes the difference. Um, I feel like you're going through this process. Like I looked at pictures of us on tour and like pictures of you now, and you, you seem like you've gotten a lot more like confident and sexy. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's, it takes, I think I made a decision. I was very close to after Trevor died. I was like, I have to just be myself as yeah. much as possible and do the things that I care about as much as possible. And I've been working on that ever since, just like trying to be honest with myself and honest with the world. And um, that helps a lot. You know, like I had a problem lying when I was growing up. I'm really? a horrible, a compulsive liar. And um, John and people in my life who are really compulsively honest, like my mom, for example, she and John have a lot in common, um, inspire me to be more honest. And I think that I like just made that decision. Like, I think this is an important trait, even though it doesn't come naturally to me and, huh. um, started working on that. And part of that is like being more comfortable with, you know, wearing whatever I want and, you know, being okay with myself. Yeah. Being that's a person. Awesome. So, yeah. yeah, I, I think I went through something similar where I realized that you have two options. Like option a is to be upset with yourself and option B is to be happy with yourself. I think there's a lot of forgiving yourself that's yes. needed for option B. Like yeah. the problem, like people get upset with themselves for not being perfect and no one's yeah. perfect. No one's perfect. Yeah. Like here we are all full of flaws, but it's nice to like kind of know what they are and yeah. be able to laugh about them a little bit and move on and be like, I'm working on it. So it's okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And just realizing that like it is your choice whether or not those flaws will stop you from enjoying your own life. And you know, like you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be the Hollywood ideal of what's sexy. Um, you just have to love yourself, and then live the type of life that you want to live. Yeah. These are like I mean I'm saying it like it's simple. It's the hardest thing in the world. I mean it's yeah very difficult. Yeah. Um, like if you even get close to that, it's like lucky. It's yeah. You know. And then there's this fear of loss once you start to feel that happiness, like. Like, you're gonna lose it all, you know? Yeah, like, every decision you make could just take it all away again. Right. Yeah. Um, hmm. But my my solution to that would be live in the moment, you know? I am all about the moment. Yeah. Yeah. If you're happy in this moment and you love what you're doing in this moment, then fucking live it up, you know? It's just night eyes. It. Night eyes taught me that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Oh. Night eyes. Yes. Just... You know, be present, enjoy the hunt. Yeah. Yeah. I used to think towards the future so much that I couldn't enjoy the present. 
Mm-hmm. And then I used to hate the present because it wasn't the future that I had expected for myself. <laughs> um, and then I created a new present based off of the information that I now had about what my life was. And now I feel very happy and productive and you are healthy. very You are very productive. Yeah, I've been yeah. doing a lot recently. It's been nice. Yeah. Uh, I feel like this podcast has actually become a uh, an impetus for me to do more with my life because... <laughs> Like you weren't doing enough already. Well, I now have, I have my own deadline every week, which is like, I got to get a podcast out every week. Mm -hmm. So, um, also like sitting down and having these conversations, as you now know, is fucking rad. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. And it's like, helps me just kind of get my brain into a nice creative space. And plus you like gave me chocolate and you gave me whiskey (laughs) and Miles is napping on my leg. Yeah. It's just all delightful. It's just like a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. And then it gets me in kind of this like creative space. So when I wake up on my days off, I release the podcast on Tuesday evenings now, which is now I've finally settled on Tuesday evenings. Um, Tuesday's my Saturday. So when I wake up on Tuesday, I got to finish my podcast. So instead of watching Frasier all day long, I watch a Frasier and then I get to work. Uh, and then if I finish the podcast, I'm like, well, maybe I'll work on some uh, Mugatu mixes or because mm-hmm. we're still finishing our last album or um, yeah. like last week I wrote a song with. Uh, Lindsay and Randy that was on the end of the last podcast and uh, and we made a music video for it that's going to come out on the 17th and it's oh, awesome. Awesome. It, we, we did it they all They are days. so adorable. Yeah. Have you listened to the last episode yet? No, I haven't. You're going to love it. It's really funny. They yeah. do improv as Kenzie and Chloe for the last half hour. Yeah. John told me he liked it a lot. Yeah. It was really so, fun. Yeah. Um, do you want to play some music? Sure. Let's do it. Uh, yeah. It's, let's music it up. Let's do it. Let's play. We got to play Asteroid Field. Okay. I found myself in the asteroid field With the empire on my tail Nothing to guide me but my co-pilot's roar Still I know we will prevail I'm flying solo Solo, here I go, flying Solo, solo I fell in love in the asteroid
I found myself in the asteroid field. I found myself in the asteroid field. was great that felt like we we're like we were on the same page that time yeah yeah we're always on the same. i don't know what i'm saying it's well i mean clearly we've read a lot of the same books yeah so. <laughs> <laughs> that one just felt extra good yeah i think like you sit and you talk to someone for a couple hours and then you play music with them i know it'd be great it helps a lot to have a good relationship with your bandmates yeah in general. Totally. it's yeah. nice yeah ah that was really satisfying yeah i hope it sounds as good as it did I, I'm sure it will. It, yeah, <laughs> I think the physics of technology. that are going to work out in my favor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also like the time-space continuum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All that stuff. All that. That's awesome. That's on your side. Man. It's, Thank you. It's a really cool experience to feel your own music. Yeah. Like, I felt that. Thank you for letting me be in on it. Thank I love you. that song. So, it, I mean, I love all your songs. Sometimes I forget that singing my own stuff with other people can be really powerful. Because mm -hmm. I... I'm really protective of my own music and I've had bad experiences playing in bands in the past where I am the band leader and I'm asking people to do something for me on a regular basis. And I have, I, I struggle with that just like emotionally. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes I shy away from starting my own band. Yeah. I really need to get over that. Yeah. Well, I think it's easy to not want to tell people what to do, but, and for most people, it's a good idea to not be in charge, but I think you yeah. have really good ideas and you're really good Thank at directing you. people. Um, like I hope amicably so. i've gotten like, better yeah um, yeah wow. like being i've never been in a i had i had never been in a really truly collaborative band until mugatu where we all wrote together mm -hmm. i think that really helped me learn how to talk to people diplomatically uh yeah. yeah yeah so now i should try i should try again to have my own band it's nice i think the important thing is just having the situation defined like for yeah. john i am very happy to just be a minion for yeah. Johnny Unicorn, um, in a lot of ways, like when it's the Johnny Unicorn project and the jam unit, like he is the one coming up with the idea in the first place. And then he's taking it to the rest of us and like saying, you know, do your own thing on it, put your own DNA in it. But yeah. I like reserve the, you know, he gets final veto. Yeah. And it's nice knowing that that is the power structure at play. I love that. Totally. And then he will also work on other projects where it's completely collaborative. And he and I are like deciding on each note every step of the way, like agreeing on the note before we move on to the next note. And it's totally different music. And it's nice to know what's going on, what's going on with that too. Like knowing that that's our goal yeah. rather than the other thing. So. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, so uh, as long as people like want to be your minions. Yeah, then... and I have a hard time trusting that. I think. <laughs> and playing in John's band, that's also what I learned because I'm I'm one of John's minions. Yeah, I'd never done that before. We all are. And that was yeah. <laughs> uh, it was really uh, 
a good learning experience for me to have to cede some of my control to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, especially musically, because I'd never really done that. Like, yeah. I've done that over and over with trumpet being in, like, symphony orchestra, but yeah. but it's very different. Yeah, you know? that's, like, written music that right. already exists. You don't have any... Yeah, like, creative. when you're playing... When I'm playing drums in a band, which is usually when I'm... Uh, when I'm someone's minion, it's always been on the drums mm-hmm. uh, so far, which I've done in, like, three or four bands. Uh, and then if I'll, I'll come up with a drum part and they don't like it, I had to learn how to say, okay, and then come up with another drum part. Yeah. Whereas before, it's be like, no, this is the fucking drum part. Like, this is what I came up with, and that's great, and you must love it. <laughs> and I've, I've gotten over that, which was hard, because that's how I was for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's easy to get really attached to an initial idea. Um, yeah. Something that I... The way that I am is very... Like, if the notes are good and they're played well, I will like it no matter what the arrangement is, really, or, like, what synth sounds they're using or anything like that. I, like, kind of ignore it and I just listen to the notes. And so there's so much in arrangement that that we can get really picky with, but I feel like it, it's just, you know, the end product. Was it well-written and well-conceived? And, like, did you own all the choices you made? And if that's the case, then some of the specifics of the choices isn't as important. It's the fact that you made the choice, you huh. did the thing and you owned it. And... Yeah. That's great. Cause then you're getting up and doing something. Yeah. And getting mired down in the specifics has been a problem for a lot of people that I know. Uh, like when I was in uh, Horace Pickett, mm-hmm. I felt like we got mired down in specifics a lot and it yeah. prevented us from performing and releasing music. And you know, Horace Pickett is a great band and it was like, a great full band, of yeah. perfectionists, but that totally. can be definitely yeah. a, a roadblock. Yeah. And it has to be perfect. Yeah. And it was something that we all knew. Like we were working on recording an album before I left the band and we were working on the same songs every week and doing them differently every week and it was like the song had been lost. Yeah. In in the inability to make a final decision. Yeah. It's interesting. It's nice when you can get into a rhythm of arrangement with a particular band. Like yeah. John and Chris and I got together last night and arranged a couple of new John songs like cool. with the drums and keyboard. And it was just like, you know, like we each have our own personality and way that we play. And when we like have been doing it for a while together, it all just kind of, you know, happens faster. Yeah. yeah. So it was really nice to just be able to arrange something and not have to be all like, okay, do we really want to put that eighth note there? Or, you know, should we syncopate it? You yeah. Know, like with every single point <laughs> where you could ask that question. <laughs> yeah. I, when we played at Seaprog, um, like Dan DeRozier came and he, yeah. he told me that he thought like watching our set was like watching a panel of experts. <laughs> <laughs> he said it was just like, like, like watching a bunch of experts play, because it was it's really complicated nice music, and we just kind of really owned it. Yeah, and I thought that show went very well. Yeah, I was really happy with that show. It yeah. was one of my favorites. Yeah, and I was extra happy that Dan showed up. Yeah, so. me too. Yeah, and we worked all summer towards mm-hmm. that one show. Yeah, because originally we we're gonna go on tour, and then the tour bus died the true death, and <sighs> we couldn't couldn't leave. So then it's like, well, we still have Sea Prague. Yeah. So let's do that instead. Yeah. Um, and it was a really cool experience to rehearse all summer for one thing. Mm -hmm. Reminded me of like doing plays when I was younger. Yeah. I like that too. And I think that's a lot of what John wants to do going forward is like Mm -hmm. project oriented 
yeah. you know, rehearsing. Like, he wants to have an album or show that he's rehearsing for, but not just have it be nebulous. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to be in nebulous bands. Like, I want mm-hmm. to be in bands that we just record, we rehearse, record, and play all the time. Yeah. And there's no defined goal other than everything. But recording is a pro. I mean, that's still projecty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, but it's also, it's really overwhelming to be in a band like that sometimes. Yeah. Where, uh, and I think that's where some projects fall apart is that you have to, you still have to have focus in that and you have to have a path and trajectory and goals. Mm-hmm. Um, or none of the above. Like Mugatu is kind of like a none of the above situation where we're just like, we're just going to have the best time possible. And that kind of attracted yeah. an audience. Yeah. That's a goal. That's a yeah. good goal. I've just been thinking about this constantly because starting my own like solo project band, mm-hmm. like a, a sci-fi project band. Do Which need, I need to, I, I feel like I need to do that. Do you need you know? your, your minions to like be more pushy about it? Maybe. I know, I just know that you've been really busy and so I haven't been like getting yeah, in touch with you. That's and, been part of it too. I've been really busy. Yeah. But, but maybe. But I want to like, you know, get in on that. Yeah. Play your stuff. Well, you're making, you're making me realize that maybe I'm thinking about it in the wrong way. So. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. And if it, if it would feel anything like what we just played. Because that felt so good, you yeah. know, and that's what I want is to, to sit down and play music and have it feel good. Yeah. Um, and like combine our voices in a erogenous way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Think on it. Yeah. Well, let's let's get to let's get together and play some music and see what it sounds like. Because mm-hmm. we did that a little bit and it sounded great. Before when we thought we were going on tour, we were starting to work up a yeah. set of the sci-fi songs and it was awesome. I was just practicing Elliot the other day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's fucking do it. Well, with that, I feel like I feel like we're at a good stopping point. Yeah. Well, thank um, you so much for inviting me to come talk to you. Yeah, this was awesome. I'm definitely going to have you back, Aww. whether you want to or not. <laughs> um, yes, you know where I live. So. I do. Yeah. yeah. And you are in where I live. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope uh, if you're listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Sci-Fi Project, and you are at Naomi Adele Smith. Yeah, I haven't used it since tour. But you can find me on Facebook, too. Yeah, on so, Facebook. I yeah, have a much bigger Facebook Smith. presence than Twitter, mm. which I've been thinking about recently because, like, I have my Facebook page, which is, like, Facebook pages don't work very well. Yeah, the actual Jesse Mercury page. Right. Yeah. But I get a, lo- a lot of people that I'm friends with or that follow me on my mm-hmm. personal page. So I've just started using that more often. Yeah. I so think if that's you want to subscribe to me, I'm mm-hmm. Jordy LaForge on Facebook. First thing I ever knew about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then check out Autumn Electric to hear more of Naomi doing mm-hmm. her thing. Yeah. And Johnny Michael Unicorn. Yeah. And Johnny Unicorn. Mm-hmm. She's all over that shit. And if you like Jewish music, Seattle <laughs> Jewish should. Corral. Yeah. 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 Shameless promotion at the end I of the know, episode. I know. I know. We're going to have an awesome Hanukkah show. So. Ooh. Where, where and when is that? I'm not sure. I'll, uh, I'll find out. They're, they're sending out a schedule in the next email. So. Awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, it's been fucking rad. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's call it a podcast. It's a podcast. Awesome. And we'll, we'll see you next week. Yeah.